Today on the Scott Radley Show on 900 CHML. Welcome to the Scott Radley Show for this Monday evening start of a brand new week. Glad you're on board. Hope you had a better day yesterday than Joe Coy. Do you know who Joe Coy is? I didn't know who Joe Coy was. I learned about him since. He he was the unfortunate guy who somehow got roped into hosting the Golden Globe Awards last night. And I don't know if you've... I did not watch the Golden Globe Awards. I, I, I used to watch them when Ricky Gervais was hosting because he was fantastic. Uh, Joe Coy is described as a comedian. <laughs> and I say described as a comedian because... Uh, it didn't go so well yesterday for poor Joe. He got roped in at the last minute to hosting this. And um, this is why I will never go up on stage at a comedy club, even if someday the mood struck me and I thought, you know what I should try? Stand-up comedy. Because uh, the, the distance between the bottom of your feet and the endless abyss that is colossal failure... <laughs> is is long and silent. No laughing. It was, oh man, I don't know if you saw any of the highlights of this. I felt very badly for him. I really did. If you've ever watched a comedian bomb so that people are simply staring at you, like, what are you doing up on stage? Yeah. Yeah. I felt, I, I, I there's a lot of people shredding him today online. I'm not going to shred him. I just, I just feel badly for the poor guy. This was, if you're a comedian and by the time you finished your soliloquy, cause I can't call it a, anything else. Uh, if no one is even smiling, <laughs> that's a rough day. That is a rough day, but oh well. Oh well, c'est la vie. I'm sure that Joe will bounce back and have a huge success somewhere else and we'll all forget about this. Or maybe it's just good that nobody watches the Golden Globe Awards. And so it's, uh, you know, if a comedian bombs in the forest, is anyone here? I don't know. Welcome to the show. Really, as I say, glad you are along today. If you did watch that last night, last night I hope you've recovered. Let me tell you what's coming up on the show today. We are going to be talking for this first hour about stuff to do with our city. There are a lot of questions. Matthew Van Dongen from The Spectator uh, wrote a great piece the other day highlighting a number of the issues specifically related to transportation that are facing city council this year. Decisions that are going to be on their plate that are not easy decisions and that I would suggest in many cases are going to be, for many people, very unpopular Where do we go with all this stuff? We'll talk about that with John Best in a minute. And at the bottom of this hour, I told you last week that we were going to do this because if you remember the fire last week at Woodlands Park, the one near the encampment, and thank goodness, as we said yesterday, or said last week, thank goodness nobody was injured or killed. I mean, that's the most important thing. But after they got that sorted out and realized that everybody was okay, they announced that the, the damage estimate for this brick Spartan, unexceptional public bathroom was half a million dollars. And I'm just looking going, how in the world is something like that half a million? Where is our, where are our tax dollars going that a building like that would be half a million dollars? Well, one of the city councillors is going to join us and 
maybe shed some light on that. Maybe not. I don't know. We'll, we'll find out about that at the bottom of the hour. Don Robertson will be here next week as he always is on Monday. As always, the first segment of the Scott Radley show is brought to you exclusively by fox40shop.com for sport and for safety. Has to be fox40shop.com. Enter the promo code Radley at checkout and you will get 25% off your order. Right now though, let's go to one of our favorite guests, the guy we like to bring on here when we are talking about things to do with this city. His name is John Best. He's publisher of the Bay Observer. Joins us tonight. John, how are you? I'm fine. Good to be with you, Scott. I really appreciate you coming on. As always, love having you on here. And as I say, Matthew um, wrote this piece that was in The Spectator, and it just brought together and was a reminder to me of some of the things that this city is going to be facing when it comes to transportation. Transportation, I would suggest, John, and and again, this sort of brought it to the fore and brought it to mind, but uh, other than housing, I don't know that in 2024, there are going to be more decisions facing council than things that are involving transportation, whether it's converting roads to two-way or deciding who operates the LRT or highway things, because we know the mayor's trying to get the province now to pick up the ownership of the Red Hill and the Link. I don't know there's anything other than housing that's a bigger deal this year. Well, transportation has been, and when I say transportation, uh, 90% of it has been LRT, and it's been on the public agenda in one way or another since uh, roughly uh, 2007, I think is when it first was uh, mooted about here. So that's 16 years we've been talking about it and uh, it's still uh, it's still on the agenda although it uh, i have to say it seems like a, a increasingly elusive target um, there's uh, you know other than this announcement last month uh, about the uh, some of the changes they made at the west end uh, there, there has been very little movement towards anything that looks like procurement, anything that looks like tendering. So um, I'm not sure where the project is. And in fact, I, I spoke to somebody this afternoon who said to me that uh, based on conversations they had, uh, this is not high on Metrolinx's list. They've just got so many headaches in Toronto and Mississauga that... Um, uh, there's a meeting coming up, I think, on the 29th where the, of our own uh, uh, LRT subcommittee. And there's some people are apparently scrambling around because they're not sure what to report. Well, I mean, one of the things that they're going to have to decide on, and frankly, I'm, John, I am still shocked that we haven't got an answer on this yet because we still don't know what this is going to cost to operate. And that's going to have to come up soon, I would think. Assuming that the construction is going to happen, we still don't know who's going to be behind the wheel and maintaining and all the kinds of things to do with it. Am I alone on this one or does it seem like if we're this far along in pushing to get this thing built, we should at least know what the costs are going to be when it does get built, assuming it does, to operate it? Well, I think the big obstacle there, Scott, is is this, I, I, I don't want to call it a debate. Uh, there, it's kind of a phantom debate about they're, they're now using the word privatization. And, you know, Eric Tuck, is a, he's a hell of a guy. I like him. But uh, this is not privatization. Uh, who's going to run the, who's going to drive those uh, vehicles and who's going to maintain them? Um, our, our city crews are, are bus mechanics and bus drivers. They have no expertise in dealing with, uh, uh, you know, rail uh, bogies and all the stuff that's engaged in railway. I don't even know why we're having that debate. 
Um, it's not going to displace any of our drivers because at the same time as we're displacing some of our drivers with LRT, uh, we're, we've got an ambitious plan to add bus routes elsewhere. So I, I don't know why that argument is persisting, but uh, I guess we'll have to let it go on for a while longer before the province will tell us what they want to do. And when they tell us what they want to do, that will be it. But I, I go back to the original. I, I don't see imminence uh, in this project. There's uh, there's absolutely nothing. Uh, I, I would, in fact, I talked to uh, uh, I.O. Infrastructure Ontario last year and said, "What has got? What are the steps that have to be taken before we actually let out a tender?" And and they told me we still need to do a final design. And you know, one of the expectations that I have, and I fully expect this is going to be the case, is the, the last update that we got in Hamilton was that it's going to cost between 6.4 and $16.5 million a year to run. That was a couple of years ago, I think, was the when those numbers were given to us. Since then, Toronto's LRT, which is double the length, but came in with a number of like, I think $105 million. I mean, just way, 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 way more. I absolutely believe, and you tell me if I'm nuts here, I absolutely believe when Hamilton is finally given a number, it's going to be considerably higher than the 16.5 highest estimate. And our counselors are going to say, we're shocked. We couldn't imagine that this was the case. We can't believe that this is the number. It's, it's almost, I think, predictable as to what's going to happen. Well, and, and the concern, Scott, is that we won't actually get the number until after the the system is in operation. I, I don't know how you can predict that number. Uh, you know, all the construction costs have been pretty much out of whack. And, um, you know, I, I'm just uh, not sure that, that we always thought there was going to be this moment where where council were going to be told what the operating and maintenance agreement was going to cost and that that was going to be kind of the last opportunity to accept or reject the project. I'm not sure that's going to happen now, um, uh, given the just so much uncertainty around all of these projects um, in Ontario, with the exception of Kitchener, which seemed to get going uh, reasonably well. So it's it's a real conundrum, and it just seems to me like the, you know they're having these uh, LRT subcommittee meetings and. I think what I would say to councillors, um, if if Phil Verster or the Minister of Transport is not in the room, I'm not sure why you're even having those meetings because because nobody nobody appears to have any answers at all uh, of any of any substance. And uh, in a way, this debate over privatization, as they're calling it, is is kind of a sideshow that, that I mean, we are so far away from making those kind of decisions that uh, I don't even know why that's uh, still being discussed as if it's some burning issue. Can we, or well, the city can, they can do whatever they want, but should they be, one of the, one of the issues that has been brought up before is some councillors have said they would like to have free transit. Should that even enter the discussion in the year or two or three years left in this term of council? Should that even enter the discussion until we know what the LRT is going to cost to operate? No, I, I, I don't think it can, because what we're starting to do when, when you're starting to have those kind of discussions, you're piling on costs 
when you really don't know exactly, uh, you know, what the end use and the end picture is going to look like. I mean, we, we have enough problems with uh, switching, if I can, briefly to the two-way conversion of right. Main Street, which, which I don't have any particular objection to. But all I'm saying is that when we don't know when the LRT is going to be rattling down King Street and all the construction chaos that that's going to cause, how can we be doing any of these major east-west uh, changes and, until we have some idea how they're all going to work together? Let me be so, let me be very cynical for one second, and this is not my words. This is one that a couple people have told me in the last number of months, maybe more than a couple people, in fact, and we've had a few of them on this show, I believe, as callers, who have said with that east-west or with the two-way conversion and some of the other things that there is a belief in some quarters, some corners, that there are people on council who want to make it difficult to drive in the city. Do you do you believe that, or is that way too cynical? Oh, no, that's, in fact, it's not cynical at all. I mean, that is the stated uh, goal. I, you, you, we heard it from even city staff uh, the last time this was discussed in front of council. They they want to make it uh, discouraging for people to uh, uh, drive in certain parts of the downtown area. And uh, absolutely, that, no, it's not cynical at all, Scott. It's It's absolutely part of the plan is to discourage regular vehicular traffic. Okay, but do we believe, and I don't know who the we is, but, but do we believe that in a city like Hamilton that has so many suburbs and is so geographically separated, that if the downtown becomes very difficult to navigate in your car, do we believe that people in Dundas, Ancaster, Stony Creek, Flamborough are going to take public transit to come and hook up with the link, or do we believe they just won't come downtown anymore? Oh, I think I think the latter. Um, if it becomes too difficult, uh, they won't come downtown. But why would they come downtown anyway? Um, you know, we've got a, a a shopping mall in the in the core that has been, you know, really declining for the last twenty years. I can't think of other than maybe your favorite restaurant if you want to go to Shakespeare's, uh, something like that. But I don't know why people would, would want to go downtown unless they already live there. But then why are we putting, if that's the case, then, I mean, it, it's a long story. Why then are we putting so much money and effort into it as opposed to saying, well, let's just then fix up Lime Ridge Mall in the mountain. And blah. I mean, when, when, when Michael Landauer wanted to put the arena into Lime Ridge Mall and that got voted down very quickly by council, it was very clear that our efforts, all of our efforts, or most of our efforts as a council, as a city, are to fix up and, and centralize the downtown. If now we're saying we don't care if people don't come downtown, that seems like it's sort of cross-purposes. Well, I think they, uh, you know, when I say won't come downtown, I'm more referring to the Monday to Friday, nine to five crowd. Uh, they, they will still come for entertainment. They will still come for concerts. Um, they, to some degree, will still come for restaurants, but, you know, we're seeing some of our icon restaurants are closing down. Lemoncello on, uh, on Ottawa Street, been around for two decades at least, and a very popular spot, uh, just can't continue. Um, Maxwell's is gone. Uh, the uh, La Cantina is now operating on a appointment-only basis. So, uh, you know, we... There's there's a bit of a food scene going on at King William Street and on on James North, but uh, you know there's restaurants dropping out. So 
a lot of the reasons for going downtown, uh, at least in the short term, are kind of fading away. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Last week, there was a very well-covered, well-publicized, uh, I, don't know if, I don't know if that's the right phrase, but there was a fire at Woodlands Park in town. It got lots of attention. Uh, it was near an encampment, and we are, first and foremost, thankful that nobody was injured, nobody was killed, that it was just damage that was done to property, that, you know, that's, that's the first thing in the priority. However, once that was sorted out, and then we heard the explanation, not the explanation, but the breakdown. And we heard that the damage to the property was $500,000. That was the estimate. And I got to say, I, when I looked at this building, it is a single story cinder block bathroom, no windows that I can tell one door at each end. And inside you've got toilets and sinks. This is not a spa. There's no, you know, this was as Spartan a building as you could have on city property. And this apparently is going to cost us half a million dollars to rebuild, maybe more. And all I could wonder is how is that possible? How are city buildings, when it comes to rebuilding something that's a city owned building, how are we talking about money that high when I guarantee you, and having talked to a few people today, I've had that bolstered. If this was private industry, if this was a private company, it would not cost us that much. Why does it cost so much to get things done, to build things in the city? Let me bring in Tom Jackson. He is the counselor for Ward 6, longtime counselor here in the city. Joins us now. Counselor, how are you tonight? Not too bad, Scott. Above all, good health to you in the new year and trusting your Christmas was blessed. Thank you. It was, and to you as well. And uh, yes, and, and let's hope for a great year with uh, with everything going on around here in the city. And let, let, Let's get to this because I... As I say, you probably looked at the pictures that I did too. You've probably been by Woodlands Park over the years and you're familiar many with this times, bathroom. Many times. Yes. Many. I, for the life of me, cannot understand how a building like this would cost $500,000 to build. Scott, I've got to take it this time. I haven't dealt in, uh, delved into uh, the matter or the uh, staff report yet. I'll have to take staff right now uh, at their word that the preliminary estimate is 500000 I would imagine that part of, and I'm going by um, a recent example, uh, not one that unfortunately got torched uh, very sadly uh, at Woodlands Park, a uh, feeling for my council colleague from Ward 3 of what happened there. And like you said, thank God that no one was hurt or killed. That's most important. But I've got one up at uh, Mountain Drive Park at Upper Gage and Concession, part of a task force of 40 citizens, a long story short. Uh, had to demolish uh, an old building, an old washroom building, utility building, probably similar in age as the Woodland, Woodlands one, and uh, to rebuild uh, a brand new washroom building at Mountain Drive Park for your listeners at Upper Gage Concession, costed around that amount, five to six hundred thousand dollars. And uh, I'm going to say, Scott, again, I'm no builder, I'm not an engineer, but just given my uh, number of years uh, in public life. Uh, through the procurement uh, policies that governments have to go through. And I know people will always think that uh, government is uh, an easier hit for uh, funds available because it's uh, taxpayers' dollars, although we should always be cognizant of the taxpayers that fund uh, and pay for our wages and fund these wonderful assets and amenities across our city that they use. But just sometimes I can tell you from real examples and escalating costs, that have sadly come out of the pandemic. I just can't get over corporations 
that are, in my humble opinion, gouging us all over the place. Anyways, it's no surprise to me of this preliminary estimate. And, Scott, again, it could very well be Scott's uh, staff's preliminary estimate uh, based on other new facilities like at Mountain Drive Park as to what now will be built to replace this old facility and obviously then provide Woodlands Park and that neighborhood a newer modern uh, utility washroom building to use. Do you believe that you use the phrase easier hit? Do you believe that when public government, when governments, whether it's the city of Hamilton or province or federal, whatever, when they put out a tender for something, do you believe that it is an easier hit that it, it compared to a private company that would negotiate and that would whittle it down that builders and dealers of whatever can get more money from the public? Scott, I've, uh, I've been around my honors 30 plus years enough to know that, um, the perception, and I've seen enough tenders and contracts over the years that have come in, that it just seems to me that sometimes knowing that uh, the private sector has a particular budget for something and they uh, overwhelmingly uh, will stick to it to uh, build or design or construct whatever they need to, uh, often with uh, public sector and, and public facilities, um, I've, I've seen where uh, contracts and tenders have gone out, have come in, have come in over what uh, we have initially budgeted for. And, uh, you know, the perception is out there, Scott, and, and, I, and, and I do my best over the years to try to keep as much of a monitor uh, on it and ask the questions when I need to, both in camera, when it's uh, dealing with potential uh, legal and contractual matters, as well as uh, more often in the public session. But uh, it's the perception that's out there, I believe, Scott, but again, Keep in mind that in the public domain, there are probably additional, let's call them add-ons and amenities that uh, the public would insist upon uh, in their public spaces that maybe normally, if you will, in a private park owned by a private company, they would say, this is all you're getting, and they would draw the line and stay within that budget. So I've also seen where there's been a variation where we started out and ultimately wanted to add on things or make that particular building bigger. Uh, that's driven up the cost as well. Why Why don't we do, well, we, why, why doesn't the city generally do then, if this is what it is, a better job at creating a budget and sticking with it and saying, that's all we have to spend on this. Build us what you can for that amount. Uh, that's very noble. Uh, Scott Radley, that's very noble to uh, suggest that. And uh, I know that probably a number of your listeners would expect that of government. But again, government is here to serve the public. We are not in a for-profit business, as you know. Uh, We're here to serve the public, provide public uh, services, programs, amenities, uh, projects and facilities, and uh, sometimes to meet uh, community expectations and demand. Scott, uh, that's what sometimes drives up the cost as well. But I can tell you, Scott, sincerely, through our facilities department and our engineering department under Public Works, uh, they've done, they've over the years, in my humble opinion, more often than not, not, we have project managers that oversee these projects from beginning to end, once awarded. And if there's anything going sideways, uh, you may recall the... um, the Great Meyer Arena in Dundas went sideways. Yes. Uh, whenever that happens, uh, they bring it to our attention immediately and say either, look, here's the options of moving forward that may cost additional dollars, or if we're going to draw the line, 
tell the contractor to hold within that we may have to sacrifice or uh, have done without uh, those extra add-ons. Yeah, no, I, I mean, as I say, I, I know that you're, what you're saying is that it's a not-for-profit company, and I, I, I certainly appreciate that. I also think a lot of people, though, would say, yeah, but surely we're not a spend-anything-that-it-requires-to-make-it-happen company corporation either, that there should be, you know, these are tax dollars, they're precious these days, and there should be really strong restraints put on the spending. Can I say this, Scott, in all my years on council, and I'll speak to my East Mount community, I'll speak to the 13, 14 neighbourhoods that I look after uh, with uh, roughly 40,000 people on the East Mountain. Anytime I've uh, set up citizen committees, task forces, and we'll stay with the washroom-type building and or neighbourhood park amenities, assets, if you will, for social recreational use. New playground, whatever it might be, a splash pad, sun shelter. Oh, you may recall a few years ago the amount of splash pads that uh, drove some people nuts in this community, half a million dollars to build a splash pad at a particular park that got a lot of media attention about five years ago. Anyways, back to my stories that are real. Any time that I have uh, led a charge with civic engagement to build something new or enhance or improve upon or replace in a neighborhood park, even regard the dollars and the dollar amount, Scott, and I'm trying to say this to try to educate uh, possibly uh, your listeners in terms of what has been most important and paramount for my citizens has been the type of involvement they've had and ultimately that the new park, playground, splash pad, basketball court in that community will meet expectations, demands, and will service every single individual that wishes to access and use that particular park. In other words, cost has been secondary or, uh, if you will, tertiary in terms of concern uh, when it comes to facilities and uh, public spaces and public-owned assets that the community and the public overall wants to use. Whether it's waterfront trails, the East Mount uh, Rail Trail that runs through Mohawk Sports Park, the hundreds of thousands of dollars that have been spent, and again, using my word as living example, my community overwhelmingly has said, Tom, that's where I like seeing my taxpayer money go, that my kids, the families can enjoy over our generation. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Time to bring in a guy who's wearing a property of Real McCoy's hockey shirt, which is a bit of a hint, a bit of a giveaway. He is the uh, guy who runs that Dundas Real McCoy's team and Calm Choice Realty and does a bunch of other things in Dundas. His name is Don Robertson. How are you? I'm good. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. Is this the first time you've been in since the New Year? I guess it yeah. is. Yeah, Happy New Year. Did you have a good uh, good holiday and good Christmas? It and was. Burton Cummings, were... play your basement or anything over the holidays? No, he just came in and did a, a piano solo for the small group. <laughs> but no, that's good. I'm glad you had a... Uh, and I understand that your wife had a, has retired, so Suze, congratulations. I saw that posted, so it's all, yes. it's all good. Yeah. It's all good. Uh, you, it would have been... <laughs> she, you know what she did this morning? Nope. Mall walking. Wow. Wow. She's not old enough to be, pardon any of you listening who are mall walkers, but there is a certain vintage that... uh, brought that up when I found that out before dinner, and she was the youngest one, or oldest one in the group. Really? Well, my sister and her husband, my sister's younger than I am, uh, he is self-employed and she has recently decided to retire, and they are currently 
doing a month in Florida. I'm like, how are you a snowbird? And I said, what do you do down there? Do you like go and have dinner at three o'clock with all the, they go, no, we go play pickleball first, then have dinner. It's like, how old are you? I mean, pickleball, I understand that people, but it's like, come on, you're barely into your fifties. It's a little early for dinner at three o'clock after like, I'm going to start calling her Rose or Blanche. You or don't Dorothy. know how many people you've already pissed I off. Know, a I and know, and, a half into and this I might. You know what? I've, have you ever played pickleball? No, I've never played pickleball. I've never seen a game. Oh, I've seen it, and I probably. I when I was when I was young, I played a ton of tennis. I played a ton of tennis. So you Loved can play it. it. I probably would really like. I, I haven't played tennis in years. I, I loved tennis. We used to go when I was growing up. There was a. In fact, there was a. You know, I grew up in Toronto, and at the end of our street, there was three clay courts, which was really weird that they had these yeah. clay courts. Anyway, we would go there and in the summertime on holidays, we would play all day. And we kind of broke rules. They had a, I don't know if they still do this because people wait in line. So they had this board. Don't put your name on. No, you put your your racket on the holder and whoever, and then if you come up next, you put your racket behind and you get 30 minutes and then every half hour you switch you took multiple rackets. We would take like eight rackets <laughs> and stack them up. And people eventually caught on that those idiots were <laughs> hogging the court. We, but, but I, I, I would still prob- making people mad. Uh, I'd probably love pickleball. I don't. I'm not. I'm not disputing that I would really enjoy it if I got out there and played. I'm quite sure I would. It's just doing it in Florida before a four o'clock dinner does seem elderly. It does have retirement roll all it, over it. It kind of does. You go out for cheesecake after that one and you, I say, you've become <laughs> a golden girl. <laughs> uh, if, if, if the golden girls was being done in 2024, pickleball, I'm sure would be involved somehow. Uh, you know who can afford to buy a pickleball or two? Austin Matthews. Well, him and William Nylander, who signed a $92 million contract today. So here's the thing, Don. I, and I, like, I don't want to spend a ton of time on the Leafs. There's, there's, because I believe that the Leafs, like the Hamilton Ticats and the Buffalo Bills, and to some degree the Toronto Blue Jays, have only been invented to drive their fans insane. But there are four players. If you include Mitch Marner, who makes $2.9 million, so round that up. 10.9 million. There are four, there are 11 guys in the NHL who make $11 million or more. The Leafs have four of them. This to me, I know he's a good player, but these kind of signings to me are just a guarantee that the Leafs will never win a Stanley Cup in our lifetime. Because for the next eight years, you've got, well, three anyway, guys who are going to be locked up making all the money and you're going to be trying to fill spots with other guys. Well, in defense, I think Tavares comes off the books. In As I say, three. So, so three. Okay. Well, you've got Marner, you've got Matthews, you've got Nylander, who are going to be making that kind of money. Well, I think we can, based on math and and uh, the data available, the Leafs are the only National Hockey League franchise that are going this way. Yes. And, so far. Yep. And the other National Hockey League franchises win Stanley Cups, and Toronto don't. So it's not hasn't proven to be a successful formula yet. But here's the other challenge. Somebody was going to pay Willie Nylander $11.5 million. Were they? Were they? See, I'm not convinced they were. I no. think he would have got a lot of money. Ten? Maybe. Maybe. Yeah. But for whatever reason, it seems that if you play in Toronto, 
you believe and are rewarded with value that is higher than any other player in the league. Is I mean, Austin Matthews is an amazing player. Is he the top player in the league by over a million dollars in a league where the top guy like him makes 13.2? He's making more than, a, he's making a million more than Nathan McKinnon. Is he a million dollars better than Connor McDavid or Nathan McKinnon? Well, wait till those guys redo their contracts. Except they've both got long-term deals that are going to expire yeah. the same time as him. He is, I just, it seems as though if you play in Toronto somehow. But Toronto Maple Leafs have been doing that seemingly for decades. Um, Larry Murphy, uh, Dion Phaneuf. And I think the Leafs used to have the attitude that if we pay Dion Phaneuf as much as, who's that big guy that played in Edmonton or moved Chris around? Pronger. Chris Pronger. Yeah, if we pay him the same as Chris Pronger, he'll be as good as Chris Pronger. And I think that's the mentality they had. So they set expectations for free agent guys that they would bring in, not homegrown. These guys are all homegrown except for Tavares, and he started it all. Um, but the difference with the Leafs is Sidney Crosby makes $8.7 million yep. for obvious reasons. It matches his number on the back of his jersey. He, he and many players have taken a discount so they could build a fairly decent hockey team. In Toronto, it seems to, as you pointed out, work in the reverse. We will pay our good players even more. And the guys that have to take the hometown discount, like their fourth line has to all play for the absolute uh, salary minimum in the National Hockey League. And their sixth and seventh defensemen have to do the same thing. It really limits them. So they need pretty quality guys that are prepared to come to the Toronto Maple Leafs and or home to the Toronto Maple Leafs, Toronto area guys, that will do the same thing so they can play for the Toronto Maple Leafs. Now that said, if you're if you're that fourth line guy and you can play for the Toronto Maple Leafs for three or four years and they can have some success, you can dine out on the fact that you were a veteran Toronto Maple Leaf for a number of years afterwards. You can do card appearances, there's a lot of benefits to of being a Toronto Maple Leaf if you stay in this area. Yeah, I just, as I say. It doesn't all add up. I'm not trying to justify anything, but that's the. It it just seems as though there is this belief that somehow Leaf players are more valuable than any other players, and I don't believe that. And and again, I understand it's got something to do with when you sign your deal. I get that. But Leon Dreisaitl is making eight and a half million. Um. Kale McCarr is making $9 million. I, the, other than maybe Austin Matthews, there's not a guy on the Leafs that the Leafs would not trade in a split second if the Avalanche was dumb enough to say, give us whoever for Kale McCarr. The best defenseman in the game by a mile right now, You would, and, and he's cheaper than all these other guys. It's just, I I don't understand what it is with the Leafs where they are terrified, it seems, absolutely terrified of losing anybody. Yeah, they seem to be. So we'll overpay. But they got to decide where they want to take the heat. But now they've got, so now they go for free or. But now these guys are all on no trade clauses. Now you're stuck. If this doesn't work, you've got the next five years because that's when, well, I guess Marner's got a couple years left. Matthew's got five uh, and uh, Nylander's now got it. You're, you're basically stuck with these guys, whether it works or not. And 
Is there another team? Uh, I understand that another team would take Austin Matthews at the price he is paid. He's a special player, top a top five player for sure in the world. Yep. But is there another team that would pay eleven and a half for William Elander? I think he would have got ten somewhere else, but not an eleven and a half. My concern, if I'm the GM of the Toronto Maple Leafs, which I'm not yet, and they haven't won recently, but that's a story for another day. The um, is William Nylander the one that we've seen the last three months? Is that the guy you're getting for eight years? You hope, because if he's not, and it doesn't kick in till next year, and he is twenty-seven, twenty-eight takes him to thirty-six. How are you feeling about paying a 36-year-old $11.5 million? Well, at that time, you're hoping that the salary cap has gone up by 15 or $20 million and then it's not that big a hit. I mean, it's still a lot of money. It's always going to be a lot of money. 11 right? five, still eleven five. I get it. And the Leafs have been hamstruck a little bit about the fact that the salary cap has been flat the last three yes. or four years, COVID. And you know when you're signing these guys saying, we're going to have a lot more breathing room if we lock them in. And it won't look as absurd, perhaps, if the salary cap goes up, but it hasn't. And it's going to go up next year. But it's going to have to go up $10 million for these guys to get any room. Well, and if it goes up by $4 million, like they say, you don't think that every player now thinks that his value has just gone up? It's not like you suddenly have $4 million and that's a $4 million player. Every guy who wants a raise is going to be pointing to the increased salary cap going, I want a little of that. It's... It's not like one team has gone up by four. Every team is going up by four. It will raise all boats and, and raise the salary of everybody. So the, the thing you really want to look at, and I don't, I, I'm not blessed with a computer screen in front of me like you, I'd be interested to see what the Carolina Hurricanes are paying for their club. And they are not very far off the Toronto Maple Leafs or the Winnipeg Jets, what their salary cap is. And they're in first place overall or tied thereof in the National Hockey League. So that's kind of where the benchmark has to be. Who are the other, some of the other top teams in their division in the league that are having success that are paying $25 million a year less, $20 million a year less? Donnie Waddell, I think, is still the GM in uh, Carolina. Took the job because nobody else wanted to work for the guy because he wouldn't pay anybody. But boy, is he ever earning his money down there. I would love to know, and we're not going to find out because the league, and I think, I mean, we can have this discussion. I, if there was no salary cap and the league seems far, this is what, one of the things that drives me nuts about the NHL, the league seems far more concerned about Arizona than it does about Toronto and Montreal. The teams that carry this league get hamper, they get, they're required to stay down with the teams that drag the league down rather than the other ones having to try and keep up. But if there was no salary cap, who would be on the Leafs right now and what would the salaries be? The Detroit Red Wings won multiple Stanley Cups prior to the salary cap because Illich would pay whatever he wanted to pay or had to pay to bring in good players and keep good players. So you can see what it does. The NHL wanted parity. Yes. And they have parity. Arizona is not a bottom feeder. Uh, and I, I'm not sure. I hope they're selling out their 1,800-seat arena. <laughs> uh, I say that tongue-in-cheek, <laughs> but I think it's like 3,500 seats. 
and they need parity. If you have the top half and the bottom half, if you've got the Leaps and, and the Habs and the Rangers and the Kings and so on, they don't, they don't, but it's interesting, they don't really have a salary cap in baseball. And Tampa Bay Rays. No, they don't have one at all. They have yeah. a luxury tax, but, yeah, but that's, if you want to win, you pay it. The Dodgers are going to pay a trillion dollars in, in luxury tax. They don't care. And probably get it deferred. Yeah, probably. But no, I mean, you, look, if, if you did not have a salary cap in the NHL right now, I think it is very realistic to say that the Leafs would have a different goalie. They would definitely still have Zach Hyman on their team, who now has, I think, 25 goals already this yep. year. Uh, there's no way he would have gone and left if they could have paid him whatever amount. Uh, could you ha- could you say that it would be outrageous that Drew Doughty, a local a London area guy, might have come to the Leafs if yep. they could have fit him under the cap? You can go down the list. They'd uh, have an all-star team. They, well, they would. Uh, now, how much they would want to spend... But yep. they could. They the Leafs. I'm sure. I don't. I've never looked at the books. Obviously, I bet the salary cap is what ninety million something in that ballpark now. The Leafs could spend double that and still make money. The interesting thing about the salary cap in the National Hockey League to bring parity in, they made teams like the Toronto Maple Leafs and New York Rangers make more money. So it was yeah. a hard ar- argument to get into. I mean, if Gary Bettman's looking across the room at the Leafs and saying, "You're only at this time spending fifty-four million dollars." I'm sorry, you're going to make another $40 million this year. Take all the time you need to dispute what we want to do. But you're going to need a good GM, and you're going to need a good coaching staff. You're going to need a good scouting staff. That's one thing Dubas did. He built up their uh, support staff. They have, they have probably as many coaches as they do players. They have an inordinate amount of scouts, and they can spend whatever they want on scouting. It doesn't seem, but to, they still can't find a goalie. It doesn't seem to bode very well for them, but they they have that luxury. Of all the things, I, I don't want to get too deep into this, but I remember for years the Philadelphia Flyers, until recently when they've been struggling, they're back a little bit now. But for years, when they were a pretty decent team, they were a team that just could not. When Bobby Clark, especially, was general manager, could not figure out that they need a goalie. They had guys like Roman Chechmanic who was playing net in Bobby Clark of all people who has two Stanley Cup rings because of Bernie Perron. because of Bernie Perron should have known you build from the net out the Leafs for all the offensive talent they have maybe Joseph Wall is going to become a great goalie but since Ed Belfour left because they had Joseph and then Belfour since he left they've had nothing of of renown in net and it's just it's amazing to me that you that this team cannot seem to figure out how to develop a goalie or find a goalie. The good ones are hard to find and they're hard to pick because juniors look outstanding and then all of a sudden they're not that good in pro and I probably do this once a year on this show but in uh, Jacques Demers uh, French accent the better Patrick Wa played the better I coach. That's absolutely right. And I I've won uh, pro championship, uh, three Allen Cups, and every time, every time, my goaltender has been the MVP of the series. Every time, Rolly Melanson, the Brantford Smoke, Donnie Edwards, nineteen eighty seven, and Brantford, the year he got let go by the got bought out by the Leafs, and uh, Mike Mole the last two years. I mean, goaltending makes you look smart as a coach and 
good defense or bad defensemen love him. Well, when they screw up, he saves their day. The last two Leafs coaches who have had any success in the playoffs, Pat Burns was here. Is Pat Burns seen as a great Leaf coach, a beloved Leaf coach, if Felix Potvan is not there to Grant Fuhr and then Felix Potvan to make him look? I mean, you give him somebody who's Yuri Suri. Yuri Sira. Yeah, there you go. You give him Yuri Sira, whose last name is still impossible to spell. Four <laughs> letters and you still can't put it in the right order because it's, remember him with Mike Palmatier era? Um, but uh, Pat Burns, Felix Potvan, Pat Quinn then comes along. Guy Pat, lives down the street here. Pat Quinn, great coach, but you take away Curtis Joseph and Ed Belfour and have him have to play Mark LaForest, who you know pretty well. Yep. Uh, Trees. Or, or some of the other guys who are not Ed Belfour and, and Curtis Joseph, and do we think of Pat Quinn as one of the great Leaf coaches? No, we don't. I, he's a great coach, but if you can't keep the puck out of your net, you're not a great coach. The only teams in recent memory, and this is in the last 30 years because that's recent for me now, uh, the one Stanley Cups without the best goaltenders, Detroit Red Wings. Yep. They were so good, they didn't need... Uh, Martin Brodeur, uh, Patrick Waugh, Curtis Joseph, Eddie Belfer. They didn't need those guys because they were so good. But very, very few teams can win a Stanley Cup without a goalie. Even if the goaltender isn't an elite goaltender but gets on a run. Well, there you go. And starts thinking Steve Penny in Montreal. Jean-Sebastien Jaguar. Who yeah. was not, he was an okay goalie. He was a pretty good goalie, yep. but he got red hot the year Anaheim won the cup. And that's what you needed. Um, Corey Crawford. Yeah. Um, right. And then look what happens the other way. So when Edmonton goes to the finals, the year they finally lost to Carolina. Game seven, I was there. They had, um, what's his name from Simcoe? Uh, Rollison, Dwayne Rollison. Yeah. Who was unbelievable all playoffs, gets hurt on a weird play. And they bring in uh, former Hamilton Bulldog, uh, who I'll think of in a Ty, second, uh, Ty Conklin, who was okay, but he was not playing at the level that that Rollison was, and they lose. Ro- Rollison never played at that level before or after. Or after. But here's what happens with, you're talking about um, um, Willie Nylander. Here's what happens with Jaguar, for example. He goes on that run and his contract's up. And you sign him. You sign him because he is an all-world goaltender. And you're still hammered because you've won the Stanley Cup, and you go, "Oh, he's the guy that we had for two years that was okay." Yep. But he is not. Well, he's not an All Star. Tim Thomas, Chris Osgood, Corey Crawford, uh, Matt Murray, Steve uh, Penny, Steve Penny. Yeah, but the guys who Cam Ward, who got really hot for long enough to carry you to a cup, and then remembered that they were okay. Happy they weren't in the American League. There you go. Oh, well. It's, uh, you know, it's nice that the Leafs have these highly paid players, but... Um, we'll see if it works. Hasn't yet. The one thing you cannot buy is a Stanley Cup. Clearly. You can, but it's not the original one. <laughs> That's right. The one made of styrofoam with spray-on metal paint. You can have one of those if you want, or balsa wood. Uh, Don, you were... For people who don't know, you have a long history 
of hockey in Brantford. You started a league called the Colonial Hockey League, and one of your teams that you started was the Brantford Smoke back in... 91. 91. Uh, I always remember you telling me the story. <laughs> one a lot day, of things you're going to remember you one, can't talk about. Yeah, one day we'll, uh, one day soon we'll, we'll, but I just remember you telling me that that first year it was hard to find players who could play. And I think your description was it was the league of misfit toys that first year. Uh, maybe the second year too, but it well, was. The second year we won it all. Yep. It was easier. But you've, you've got a long history in Brantford and playing at Brantford Civic Center and you played there with uh, senior hockey and everything else. I know you went for the, I think the first time to check out the Brantford, the now Brantford Bulldogs at the Civic Center this weekend, the former, formerly Hamilton Bulldogs. What'd you think? I got there at the end of the second period, but I had time. So I want, I I desperately wanted to see the building. So I walked in and, uh, it was at the end of the second. So the lobby was full. I, uh, I have a pass in the CHL so I could get out to the glass. So I walked out and it was just it was unbelievable. the The building was full, and I in '87 when we won an Allen Cup there, and '86 too, we filled it on more than one occasion. Did with the Brantford Smoke, but not on a regular basis. I mean, this is January, and the place was packed, and the scoreboard they put in, the money they spent was all well placed. Uh, went through almost the entire building. Uh, it was, like I said, I got there during the second. I was going to go down. At one point, I'll go up and see Jay McKee and Matt Turek and, and take a look at their dressing room and so on. I went into their uh, bar, uh, oddly enough. Not the team bar, the rink bar. The rink bar, yeah. I don't know if the team's got a bar. If they have, I'll find it. Um, it, it blew me away. It, the way that they have done it, it's not big enough. It wasn't big enough then. The concourse isn't big enough, very much like Cops Coliseum. You can't put 18,000 people in Cops Coliseum or First Ontario Place and get everybody a beer and a hot dog during intermissions. And the same challenges at the Civic Centre. But there weren't big lineups. I mean, but it, it absolutely blew me away. Michael Landlar, uh, when he does something, he does it right. And kudos to him. And I ran into some people that used to come to the games for my teams and, you know, we're shooting the breeze very quickly. And every one of them said, we're going to get a new rink. We're going to have an OHL team. And well, they if do it's have not the OHL. Hamilton Bulldogs, that's going to be an OHL city. The thing I look at when I go into that building, too, is I look at things differently. I mean, the hockey was secondary to me. I mean, I watched, you know, the, most of the third period and beat the rush. The thing that, uh, I, that really stood out to me was the sponsors. And it's so diverse from 1991 when I started the Brantford Smoke up there. The diversity in the economy in Brantford was spilling out. I mean, it was fabulous to see um, Ferrero, chocolates behind the bench, the keg, uh, the people that are sponsoring. And the size of the companies that can actually do it, I think they're not going to have a lot of trouble selling a lot of private suites. I mean, it was certainly the place to be in Brantford on Sunday afternoon. And I remember when we started that team in uh, the Colonial Hockey League and won the championship, the uh, Brampers only pro hockey championship, the second year, people had said, it won't work down there. This is 91. Because they closed off, and you're familiar with Market Street, uh, when they built the Eaton Center and they built a parking ramp. So they cut off Market Street from downtown. And they said, nobody will go there now. 
and I I always knew if you give them what they want, they'll go there. So well, there was also an issue that Brantford in 1991, and and no one who lives in Brantford or lived in Brantford is going to take issue with this. Brantford in 1991 downtown was post-apocalyptic. I mean, it was an it was a dump. They have done a good job at knocking out the south side of Colburn Street and cleaning that up. It's still not perfect, but it's it is so much better than it was, and people will actually come down now. Well, the Eaton Center's gone. I mean, it's not even a retail commercial outlet now. It's a, it's it's more of a it's more of a university and college hmm. as anything. But in around the late '80s, early '90s, Massey Ferguson, White Tractor, the engine that drove that city left town. And thinking back on it, I should have took my op- optimistic hat on and put my real hat on and went. This is going to be tough going. Now, we did sell out in the playoffs, and we did sell out the night we won the championship. But it was tough going. But they've that economy is so diverse now. When you go out where Massey Ferguson was, and they had, boy, got to be 100, 150 acres out there. Somebody from Toronto bought it, and was going, these guys got rocks in their head. Well, they don't. They're gazillionaires. And now they have a huge industrial base. The community's doing very well. It's not the Brantford of old. It's got... It's not. It's got warts. Hamilton's got warts. Every city's got warts. But they have far fewer. And... Uh, do you see... Do you see... Now, I, I talked to... Uh, last week, I talked to Michael Landlauer about what was going on there. wrote about yep, how Brantford story. is working for them. It's it's turning into a real success story. He, you know, he's got a lot going on with the senators right now. They're, they've had to get rid of a GM and hire a GM and get rid of a coach. And they've got an arena project that they're working on. And there's lots of stuff. So he's not admittedly given the kind of thought to the Brantford Bulldogs that he might have under normal circumstances. But do you see, when you've seen it now, do you see any chance that they come back to Hamilton? Not from what I saw. I I was the fifty fifty draw is bigger. Yeah, uh, I was uncertain. I ran into Peggy and I said I was a fifty fifty draw. It's bigger with less people. Um, I I carefully said that it's now an OHL town. When Peter Ham and Jack Roblard bought the St. Catharines Fin Cups or Hamilton Fin Cups out of the mountain and moved them to Brantford, it probably was wasn't a, uh, an OHL town. But there's so much more you can do to, to enhance the fan experience because people want things happening. And, boy, there was a lot happening. To answer the question is, I would be really surprised if the Hamilton Bulldogs or the Bulldogs come back and become the Hamilton Bulldogs again. I know that the first Ontario place is going to sparkle and everything else. The part that I warned appropriate people when asked, and I was asked, because uh, I said, you better – be working hand in hand with Michael Andelar because if he goes to Burlington or Hamilton or Brantford, he will own territorial rights to Hamilton and he will decide if Hamilton get an OHL franchise. I wasn't sure before going to see how the team was doing, whether they would stick there. And again, uh, there has been nothing said to me to suggest from it that Michael Andelar has made up his mind. But if you're him, you've got all this stuff going on with the Ottawa Senators, and you've also got your own trucking company that people will see the trucks on the road. And you've got a city that is making it really easy 
the mayor is sitting behind the visiting bench in a bulldog shirt all the time. Seven of the 10 other councillors have season tickets and are helping with the 50-50 draws. The city there is talking about building a new arena. They are trying, they are making the path very smooth. He doesn't have to worry about that team now. He doesn't have to fight with City Hall. He doesn't have to, why in the world? All I can think is why in the world would he want to not be there now and come back here where City Hall was not particularly friendly to him. He's got an arena that's probably too big. We don't even know if he, you know, I, I, when I saw it, I just thought this is unfortunate for Hamilton, but I just don't. My, my, my percentage tipped to what chance it is that it's going to come back and it's very small now. That's, that was my impression. Uh, it's not like me to be careful and you know that, but I'm going to say the political side of it to a certain extent, but the obvious speaks for itself. Um, they're open arms. What can we do? They've given them free reign over the civic center. The auditorium where we used to have our Blue Line Club for the Moscow Models and the Bramper Smoke, they've totally redone it. I mean, it's a very welcoming facility. You can get food. You can have a beer. There was kids in there. Um, they've got a section where they where they sell um, uh, paraphernalia. It's they've. It would be. I don't think they've done anything that would make Michael Andelar not want to stay there. And if they do go ahead, we've got to take a, we've got to run here, we've got to take a break, but if they do, if the city does decide, and right now it's in a public consultation phase, if they do decide they're going to build an arena, and they've got some money because it's right next door to the casino, and I think they get either seven or eight million a year, the city does, from casino revenues. Which can go to other places, there's no question about it that. It could, but you could also say, okay, half of that for the next 20 years is going to go into an arena. So, and you're well on your way to covering some of the costs. So what I didn't finish when I when people were telling me I had rocks in my head, and I you could agree with that today, about uh, putting a hockey team in Civic Center with Market Street closed, I always said if you give them what they want, they'll come, and they would come in the playoffs. And then uh, the Brantford Smoke, uh, maybe the last year, maybe not even that, they built the casino. And I drove by the casino one day, and the parking lot was full. I get well, that proves it. They'll come here if you give them what they want. They've got a casino next door. They've got a built-in entertainment district in a city the size of 100,000 people. Owen Sound have an OHL team, and I think they don't have 30,000 people in that town, and they support an OHL franchise. I think they can do very well. I don't know how much tickets are, probably 25 bucks. About the same, I think, as they they were here. I just got a text, and I don't know if there's a missing word here. Uh, it was a text about the Bulldogs saying the biggest thing for me about the Brantford Bulldogs being in Brantford is it's so much easier to get to downtown Hamilton. So, uh, this person send me a text back because I don't know if you mean it's easier to get to there than downtown Hamilton or it's easier to get to downtown Hamilton than to Brantford. I'm not really sure what that text means, but nonetheless, it's, um, uh, it's, it's, they've done well. They've done a good job. They, they have. I, it blew me away. I mean, I had heard great things. I read your story. I wanted to get up there, and Sunday afternoon was the ticket. And, boy, it exceeded every expectation yeah. I had. I think if, uh, and again, I, I say this not with any kind of glee, but I think if people around here are hoping they're going to come back, I they could. But after seeing what they've done there and everything else, my odds of that happening went down by a good margin. But we'll, we'll, it's not my call. We'll see. One of these weeks, Don, we are going to do a thing. We are going to talk about uh, 
some of the stories that you're able to tell on the air. Maybe it'll have to be like a Scott Radley show after dark <laughs> for the for the hockey stories. Didn't you have David Schill on? We had David Schill on one time. David Schill played for you, and we had him on not long after the David Ayers right, that's what it thing, because David Schill had played for you, and he was like the... 38th ranked goalie in the Maple Leaf system, but there was a snowstorm and they needed a backup, so he backed up one game for uh, for Rick the Wamsley's uh, grandmother passed away and he went back to Simcoe. They were bringing a guy up from the St. John's Maple Leafs. Damian uh, Rhodes. Damian Rhodes. Um, Couldn't make it because of a blizzard out there. Bill Waters calls me one night at 10.30 and he says, uh, Robbie, we need a goalie uh, for tomorrow night. I said, yeah. <laughs> he says, what have you got? And I told him, and our starter was hurt. I said, "We, uh, David Schill's our backup. Where did he play last year? I said, Junior B in Waterloo. He's the guy. <laughs> I said, what? He said, Dusty can't get out of Newfoundland in the middle of a snowstorm. And that's what, oh, I'm sorry. Here's what happened. I apologize. Uh, that was just to go to St. John's. Who have you got? Because Rhodes is coming into Toronto. So that morning, that was at 1030 at night. The next morning, Waters calls me and says, how can I get a hold of David Schill? And I said, well, he should be at the airport. He's going to Newfoundland. He said, no, he's not. So they paged him at the Toronto International Airport, sent a guy over and took him to Maple Leaf Gardens. And he has all the pictures. I'm sorry, that's how it was. He was going to go to St. John's, and he didn't want him to go to St. John's to be the backup. But that's all we had. And um, he ended up dressing for the leaps, and it was a story in the Toronto papers. And well, I will. Um, I, it'll be I a say, fun hour in uh, in one of these days. I, th- I will not even say. Uh, I can't remember if it was him or Pete Richard. I just remember one of the guys who played for you talking about there was a bench clearing brawl, which is unsurprising. There was five of them in every game, but in Thunder Bay, and one of the players ripped off his mask and began beating him with his own mask <laughs> and then chucked it into the crowd. <laughs> and Peter Richards was in more fights in the OHL and pro hockey than any goaltender. Pete's a good guy. He's he was a great um, guy. Yeah, it's, um, he played well, with Ron Bernacki, our coach, and they played for Bill LaForge. We will we will do a whole hour one of these days. Maybe You know what? Maybe next Monday. We'll do next Monday, unless something enormous in the world of sports happens, we'll plan on next Monday just talking about... Andy Bezo. Oh, yes. Well, there's there's many. We And we may not get it all done in an hour. The Scott Radley Show. Weekday evenings from 6 to 8 on 900 CHML. The Scott Radley Show podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Radley. Thanks again for listening, and do not forget to subscribe to this podcast. It is free. You will never miss an episode. And also, be sure you rate us and review us. Whatever you think of us, we'll take it. Thanks for listening.